You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. Good. Well, welcome again uh, to those of you here in the room and on the live stream. So grateful that you've joined us this morning. Uh, Thanks for bearing with some of the technical difficulties. What a joy it is to hear testimonies of faith and see people enter the waters of baptism. Uh, As a church, we exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond. That's our mission statement. That's how we say that together. Uh, And it might be easy to think that as you hear that mission statement read, uh, that you would assume we're only talking about people outside the doors, all the weary people outside, out there, as if we are the ones who have it all figured out. And that our, our mission is really only about bringing renewal to the weary people outside the doors. But let me just correct that misunderstanding. We are all included in the weary lives that are in, rene- are in need of renewal. Not that we don't want to invite people in to be renewed among us, but we are included. This is a both-and sort of mission, not an either-or. See, we're not a church for perfect people because, frankly, none of us are. We experience the weariness of this world, and we find hope in knowing the one who was perfect and who invites us to find our refreshment in him. In response to our weariness, Jesus says, come to him and find rest for your soul. And so what we want you to know about us here at River City Church, more than anything else, is that we love Jesus, the one who died for us, even in our sin and brokenness, and the one who invites us to find rest and refreshment in him. And so let me offer you this welcome in the name of Jesus. To all who are weary and in need of rest, to all who mourn and need comfort, to all who feel worthless And you're wondering this morning if God cares about you. To all who fail and need strength, to all who sin and need a Savior, and to all who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and to whoever else will come, this church opens wide her doors and offers welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome. We're glad that you're with us this morning. And if you would now open in your Bibles to Acts chapter 26, We're going to read from verses 24 through 29 in just a little bit. That's on page 935 of the Pew Bibles, if you're using one of those. So 935 in the Pew Bibles. Let me introduce our text a little bit more before I read. Uh, We're going to preach through all of chapters 25 and 26 today. This will be the largest chunk of Scripture that we cover throughout our series of Acts. It's a long text. Uh, I will not be reading every single word of it. Uh, But we chose to do this, to take this big chunk all at once, because in the last 25% of the book of Acts, Paul, it really all focuses on Paul's journey from Jerusalem to Rome. Throughout these final chapters, Luke then repeats many different familiar scenes. He repeats many similar themes. And one of the most prominent themes here at the end of Acts, really throughout Acts, but especially here, is the providence of God. It is clear that even though there are many human actors, Roman officials and vassal kings and soldiers and religious leaders, and of course the main human character, Paul, none of them is ultimately in charge. 
God is providentially working things out for His good purposes, especially in keeping the promise that He gave to Paul in 23 verse 11, that Paul would testify about Him in Rome, just as He had done in Jerusalem. As Simon said last week, God keeps His promises by turning crises into progress. Now, a second prominent theme that we see in these final chapters of Acts is Paul's commitment to the message and the method of gospel proclamation. Paul continues to be a faithful witness regardless of the circumstances that are going on, and he does so with integrity and character, just as his Savior Jesus had. And these two primary themes, they show up here in chapters 25 and 26, so we want you to see them in one large sweeping narrative through these chapters. And so, Like I said, I'm going to lead us through the entire narrative, summarizing most of it, also reading portions, and then we're going to zoom in on Paul's testimony at the end of chapter 26. And so what we're going to see is that the man who is in physical chains has been set free in all the ways that truly matter, and he's passionate about inviting others to become like him in Christ. And so let's read together from Acts 26, verses 24 through 29. Again, that's page 935 on your pew Bibles. It will appear on the screen behind me as well. I'll read it and you can follow along. It says, And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we give you thanks for your word. We thank you for the gift that it is to us, your people. In it, we see who you are. You tell us about what you're doing in the world. We know that the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word will stand forever. And so now, as we open our Bibles, we ask you for help. Would you help us Open our eyes that we may behold the wondrous things found in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, In the summer of 2013, John Piper published an article on Desiring God, and he began with this common sentiment that he had, that books don't change people, paragraphs do. Sometimes, sentences. He went on to write that this statement may not always be fair to books, though, because paragraphs find their way to us through books and often gain their peculiar power because of the context that they have within the book. But the point remains, he goes on, one sentence or paragraph may lodge itself so powerfully in our mind that its effect is enormous when all else is forgotten. The last verse that I just read, I think, is one of those types of sentences, the sort of statement that gets lodged in our minds and has an enormous effect on our lives. The verse I'm referring to is Paul's statement to Agrippa in verse 29 of chapter 26 when he says, whether short or long, 
I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become as I am, except for these chains. Now, I do want to quickly add, because we got to be careful about this, that the verses before this statement and after are no less God's Word than verse 29. But I do think that Paul's statement here has a peculiar power within this passage. It is a powerfully crafted sentence. And for those of us who trust in Christ, we are strengthened by Paul's courageous words. We also have this same desire that our friends and our neighbors, our coworkers, all of you who hear me this day would become as we are, free in Christ. And for those who have not trusted in Jesus, if you are among us and you have not trusted in Jesus, this serves as a subtle but powerful warning. The man here who is supposed to be the prisoner, Paul, is actually the freest man in the room. It is ironic that Paul is in physical chains, but he is free in all the ways that truly matter. He is free from blindly walking in darkness, free from the burden of religion. No longer is he a slave to sin and to Satan. Meanwhile, these rulers are the ones who are actually enslaved. Paul is surrounded by governors and kings, military leaders and religious officials. They might be physically free, but they are in fact the ones who are enslaved. They are spiritually enslaved to their desire for power and money and prominence and sex and privilege. And verse 29 becomes a controlling paradigm through which we can read Paul's testimony. Paul was once a slave, resisting the work of God in the world, but now he is truly free, even if his hands are chained. And so here's the primary message for you this morning. Here's what I want you to hear, that the message we preach sets people free in all the ways that truly matter. This is an invitation for us all today to see our lives through this same paradigm and then to become witnesses to the freedom that can be found in Christ. And so, let's do our best to understand what's happening throughout chapters 25 and 26, and then we'll zoom in on Paul's testimony. So, chapter 25 begins by setting up the next phase of Paul's legal proceedings. In verse 1, it says, Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. Festus is the new governor in town. He has just started his new job, and he's ready to get to work, so he travels to Jerusalem. The Jews were a prominent people group in this region, and as a good politician, I think Festus is probably trying to develop a good relationship with his new constituents. But before we go even any further, let me catch you up on a little bit more of what's happening. So we'll go all the way back to chapter 21. Paul there gets arrested. That's why he's in chains. He hasn't done anything illegal, but those who are opposed to the gospel that he preaches accused him of many different false things. And as a result, he ends up in prison, which is when Jesus comes to him in chapter 2311 to encourage Paul, promising to him that he would testify about the gospel in Rome as well as he had in Jerusalem. And so from Jerusalem, Paul eventually gets sent to Caesarea because in chapter 23, there's this plot to kill him. So the Roman official there gets him out of town. And meanwhile, as he arrives in Caesarea, Felix is the leading Roman legal authority for that region. His title is governor, and he's the predecessor to Festus. Festus takes over for Felix. So Paul stood trial before Felix, and the Jews brought three primary accusations against him, all of which could have led to his death, and all of which were false. 
and Paul defends himself well, but Felix refused to declare him innocent. So he wanted to do the Jews a favor, and so he left Paul in prison for two years. And that's where we pick up now. Paul is still in prison, left by Felix. Festus has come to take over as the new governor, and Festus gets right to work. He travels to Jerusalem, where in verses 2 through 7 of chapter 25, we read about his interaction with these Jewish leaders. They wanted Festus to send Paul back to Jerusalem. And the reason why is because they're planning to ambush Paul along the way and try to kill him. They're repeating the plot that they had back in chapter 23. They are prepared to kill not only Paul, but any of the Roman escort that is with him. And their hypocrisy here is so very clear to us. They're willing to violate one of the very clear commands of God, do not murder. And then as in so doing, they undermine the integrity of their claim to want to be defending God. They are blinded and enslaved by their own desires. Well, Festus rejects their request. He actually invites them to come to Caesarea to bring their charges. And so then we get a repeat of the trial that we just read about in chapter 24. Paul again defends himself in this Roman courtroom. In verse 8, we get a summary of Paul's defense. Paul argued in his defense neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. And I would imagine a pretty similar courtroom scene if you go back and read chapter 24. Simon summarized the Jews' accusations last week in a really helpful way. The accusations were threefold. First, they accused Paul of stirring up riots. Second, they accused Paul of leading a fringe sect. And third, they accused Paul of profaning the temple. In the previous chapter, we get a lengthier defense from Paul. Here, we get the same basic defense all in just verse 8. When he says, neither against the law of the Jews, he is saying that he did not lead a fringe sect. When he says, nor against the temple, he's saying that he did not profane the temple. When he says, nor against Caesar, this is a way of him saying that he did not stir up riots. And so Luke, the author of Acts, he chooses to summarize this defense in verse 8, and it was a likely very similar sort of courtroom experience to what we saw in chapter 24. Then in verses 9 through 12, we again see a Roman official refuse to make the difficult but right judgment, like Pilate with Jesus, who knew that Jesus was innocent but refused to declare him so, or like Felix in chapter 24, now again Festus, knows that Paul is innocent, but he's in this dilemma, and he does not have the backbone to do what he knows is right. See, he feels concerned because he can't condemn Paul because he knows Paul's innocent. He also feels like he cannot release him because Festus does not want to upset the Jews. And so, as a favor to the Jews, he actually asks Paul if he wants to return to Jerusalem. No way, Paul says. He's in Caesar's tribunal. If he is guilty of death, then Festus should declare it so, and Paul would take that penalty. But Paul confronts Festus in verse 10, saying, I have done nothing wrong, as you yourself know very well. So if Festus refuses to do justice, then Paul appeals to Caesar. Festus consults with his advisors, then he approves that request. Now, whatever Paul's motivation was for appealing to Caesar, whether he was again aware of the Jews' murderous plot or if he just knew that God eventually wanted him to Rome, as a reader, we are meant to once again see the way that this serves God's purposes. The theme here of God's providence is evident. God keeps his promises by turning crises into progress, and now Paul is going to get shipped off to Rome. But before he does, we get this, another development in the story in verse 13. Some new characters show up. 
It says, Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. Now, King Agrippa is the son of Herod Agrippa, which we read about in chapter 12 of Acts. And he's the great-grandson of Herod the Great, which we read about every Christmas in Matthew chapter 2 as he tries to kill Jesus. This family was a notoriously wicked and messed up family. Bernice here is Agrippa's constant companion, their brother and sister, but historical accounts tell us that they had an incestuous relationship. And Agrippa comes to Caesarea with Bernice and they visit with Festus. And the functional relationship between Agrippa and Festus is a bit kind of like, so Agrippa as the king, Festus as the governor might be a bit like the judicial system and the executive branch of the United States government. Now, this is not a perfect parallel. In fact, in many ways, imperfect. But it helps us get a little bit of a framework. Festus was in charge of judicial, legal, and military matters. Agrippa was in charge of more executive functions like building projects and religious life. So in verses 13 through 22, Festus recounts Paul's case to Agrippa. And in retelling the the case, Festus makes his own assessment very clear in verse 19. He thinks that it's a theological debate about Jesus. He says that Paul believes that Jesus, a man who had died, is still alive. And given Agrippa's familiarity with Judaism, Festus is hoping that he can help him sort all this out because for a non-Jew like Festus, believing in the resurrection is an insane concept. He's like, this just seems ridiculous that Paul would teach this. But even if it's ridiculous to him, it's not deserving of death. So in verses 23 through 27, we read then this great pomp with which Agrippa and Bernice enter the audience hall the next day to help Festus sort this all out and examine Paul. Festus explains the accusations that the Jews wanted Paul dead, but that he did not see anything deserving death. Festus didn't want to send a prisoner to Caesar, though, without a reason, and so they've gathered to help Festus come up with an accusation to send along with Paul. So then chapter 26 begins with Agrippa giving Paul permission to speak for himself, and then Paul launches into his defense, and that's really the bulk of the rest of chapter 26. Paul's defense in chapter 26 is no longer, though, a legal defense. He's no longer answering the three accusations from these two previous trials. Those have been settled. What we get in chapter 26 is a far more evangelistic message and actually really helpful for us as we think about being good gospel witnesses in this world. He begins with this respectful address to Agrippa in verses 2 through 3. Then in verses 4 and 5, he explains that he grew up as a Jew He was trained in the strictest order as a Pharisee, something that the Jews could confirm if they were willing. And in verses 6 through 8, he explains that he is now on trial for giving witness to God doing the very thing that these 12 tribes had hoped for in their earnest worship. Paul is part of these 12 tribes, and they longed for the day when God's promised Messiah would come and rescue them from their bondage. That day had come, and so Paul asks in verse 8, why are people surprised that God would do exactly what he said he would do by raising the Messiah from the dead? Well, Paul then explains in verses 9 through 11 that he was also once opposed to the Christian message. He persecuted these Christians even to foreign cities, which is why he was on the road to Damascus, where in verses 12 through 18, Paul tells of his own conversion experience on that very road. 
And this is the third time in the book of Acts that we read about this story. And Paul does tell it a little bit differently, and he does so to emphasize that he was once a slave to his former ways, but now God has given him true freedom. As Paul is on the road, this bright shines, or this bright light shines around him. The risen Jesus comes to Paul, and he tells Paul that he is he's persecuting him. And if you wonder why Paul is so convinced about the resurrection of Jesus, well, it's because he saw the risen Christ. He is utterly convinced that Jesus has been raised from the dead because he met him on the road. And Jesus confronts Paul for his persecution, and then he commissions him as a witness to both Jews and Gentiles. And we'll read a little bit here from verses 16 through 18. In verse 16, this is Jesus speaking to Paul. He says, rise, stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. Paul here is perfectly commissioned for this call. And so God is inviting him into this commission. God had prepared Paul as a servant. He had been trained as a Jew and able to then see how Jesus is the fulfillment of all that God had promised. He was fluent in both Greek and Hebrew, able to move in and out of both Jewish and Gentile communities. He was also a Roman citizen, and that citizenship would grant him certain privileges and protections, which we see in these court proceedings. Paul was the perfect servant prepared by God for this task. Jesus goes on telling him that he's going to deliver him from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Jesus had promised to protect Paul throughout his work as a witness, which we see happening right now in this very passage as Paul is on his way to Rome. And through Paul's preaching, Jesus says that he will open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Here's the impact of Paul's witness. God would open people's eyes so that those who were in captivity to darkness would now be free and able to turn to the light, that those who were slaves to Satan would now be servants of God, that those who were guilty of sin would receive the freedom of forgiveness, and those who were in bondage to their desires would be sanctified through faith in Jesus. Paul is retelling his conversion story, and as he does so, he emphasizes the change that takes place in a person's life through faith in Jesus. We just heard about those sorts of changes in the testimonies at baptisms. Paul here, he had been resistant to Jesus like those who were gathered around him in the audience hall, and he's helping them to see their own story in his. One phrase that he highlights with this is in verse 14. When Jesus says to Paul, it is hard for you to kick against the goads, Paul's audience would have known what that meant. You're probably thinking, what what does that mean? This was a common idiom of their day. A goad was a sharp stick that was used to prod oxen along. However, if those oxen then got unruly, they might try and kick behind them. And the goad gave them some distance to avoid those kicks, but then also if they tried kicking, the oxen were prodded harder until they submitted and did what they were being told to do. This phrase then became common to talk about not resisting that which was inevitable. Paul was kicking against the goad of God. He was resisting the reality of God's risen Messiah, and Jesus was telling Paul to stop fighting back. 
And in verses 19 through 21, Paul goes on to tell Agrippa then that he did exactly what Jesus told him to do. He became a witness to both Jews and Gentiles, and for this reason, the Jews had seized him and tried to kill him. But Paul was helped by God, and he has testified to all people, both great, like in this audience hall, and small, all throughout his missionary journeys, telling people exactly what the law and the prophets had always said would come to pass. Paul situates his gospel message in line with God's word through Moses and the prophets, that Jesus Christ would be the first to rise from the dead, and he would proclaim this same light both to Jews and Gentiles. And now it's at this point that Festus interrupts Paul and tells him that he's out of his mind in verse 24. See, again, as a Greek, Festus had no category for the resurrection. But Paul says, no, I'm not out of my mind. These things really happen. And then he turns to Agrippa and he says, the king knows exactly what I'm talking about. These events did not happen in a corner. They're observable. And then he attempts to persuade Agrippa right here, asking if he believes in the prophets. And here's Paul's logic. If Agrippa believes the prophets and Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophets, then Agrippa must also believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Well, Agrippa avoids the question entirely. He just asks if Paul hopes to convert him in such a short time. And then we get Paul's memorable statement from verse 29, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains." And then the chapter ends with Festus and Agrippa and Bernice leaving the audience hall, consulting with one another. They agreed that Paul had done nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And then in verse 32, Agrippa says to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And if you're anything like me, when you read this narrative, one of the things that comes to your mind is, oh, Paul shouldn't have appealed to Caesar. Then he'd be set free. But that would neglect to acknowledge the entire plan of God that's unfolding here in this passage. Remember the promise from chapter 23, verse 11? Paul is going to testify in Rome, just as he had in Jerusalem. Paul needed to get to Rome, and his appeal to Caesar is going to make that happen, and on the dime of the Romans. The first theme we mentioned here is clear and on display in these two chapters. Over and over, we see God's providence at work. He is faithful to his promises. He is turning crises into progress. And the second theme that we mentioned is what I want to spend the rest of our time on, the way that Paul remains faithful as a witness, regardless of the circumstances. We can learn much from Paul's witness here in chapter 26, in particular in the way that he frames his entire testimony about his conversion, about a process of becoming truly free. Based on Paul's testimony, let me give you five appeals that you can make as a gospel witness, and these will be short. You're thinking, five? We've been going for a while already. They won't be super long, okay? Five appeals you can make as a good gospel witness. There are appeals that Paul makes here as well. Let me say this. If you have not trusted in Jesus, if you're one of those people who has not trusted in Jesus, hear these appeals for you as well, because there's an invitation this morning that you can be freed from your bondage. For those of you who have trusted in Jesus, this will equip us in our own gospel witness. So the first appeal is to your own experience. Paul frames his defense around his own experience and conversion. Who can argue with Paul's story here? He grew up in the strictest order of Judaism. He was fully committed to being the best Jew that he could be. This was evidenced by his zealous persecution of Christians. And then his life utterly changed after his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. 
If any of the Jews present were willing to admit it, they knew of Paul's reputation as a devout follower of the Jewish law. And then the dramatic change that occurred in his life after he met Jesus. In the same way, we also can appeal to our own experience. We all have a story to tell. We all have hearts that have been changed and shaped by our Savior. And in this cultural moment in which we live, someone's own experience is something that others will be very slow to disagree with. People today are prepared to deny just about any observable truth, but they will not deny someone the value of their own authentic experience. Do not be afraid to tell your own story. If you are in Christ, then you have been saved from something. Be honest with yourself about what it is and give witness to your new reality. And this is not just a tactic for evangelism, but God has done a work in your life. He has changed you. He has freed you. We can give Him credit through our witness. This is a great way to live with relational integrity all throughout life, but in particular in your workplace. Now, you don't need to convert every coworker with every conversation. You just need to live an authentic life. And if you are, a bond, or if you are in a bondage-freeing and soul-satisfying and life-changing relationship with Jesus, then He's at work in your life through His Spirit. Just take some time to observe what He's up to and then be willing to tell someone about it. Here's a simple example of how this can happen, even tomorrow at your workplace. Your coworker asks you, how was your weekend? Because that's what we always say, how was your weekend? And you can say, it was a great weekend. We had some baptisms at church, and I got to hear about the way that God is changing lives through Jesus. It made me think about the way that God has changed my life as well. It was great. You can say that. Rather than avoid talking about the fact that you're at church, you could just say, we had baptisms at church. It was so fun to hear about the way God is changing people's lives. And you might be thinking now, well, what if they ask me more questions? That is sort of the hope. That would be great if they asked you more questions. And I sincerely believe that if you are living as a faithful witness to the gospel, then Jesus will give you the words that you need. And in some cases, the words that you need are simply to say, I don't know. How about I get back to you about that? Here's the deal. If you have put your faith in Jesus, then like Paul, God has freed you in all the ways that truly matter. And one of the greatest ways you can appeal to the gospel is through your own experience. Second, you can appeal to the storyline of the Bible. On several occasions here, Paul explains that the message about a risen Messiah is in line with the law and the prophets. God had promised a Messiah, and Paul says this is the promise that God's people had always hoped for. Paul's not stepping out of line with the Scriptures in his message. He actually sees Jesus as the fulfillment of the Scriptures. And as you learn to read the Bible through the lens of the Gospel, it comes alive for you. And you can appeal then to the storyline of the Bible. And whenever you're in doubt about what to say about the Gospel, then you can always head to somewhere in the Bible that talks about the cross and the resurrection. Because this is the central message of the Scriptures. Paul sees the death and resurrection of Jesus as the fulfillment of all that had happened before. Luke, throughout all of Acts, as its author, emphasizes the Messiah Jesus who suffered, died, and rose from the dead. The story of the Bible is about a world gone wrong and a loving God who sets out to redeem that world through great sacrifice to Himself. The death and resurrection of Jesus is the way that God accomplishes that work. In your witness, learn to appeal to the storyline of the Bible with Jesus as the focal point. Third, appeal to our common human experience. 
Even though Paul is telling his own story, he's doing so in a way that invites others to acknowledge their own bondage to their desires, their sin, and their idols. If people are willing to admit it, we all know that the world is not as it should be, and at times we all contribute to what has gone wrong. We all need to be set free. Paul was kicking against the goads. In his own transparency, he is inviting his audience to recognize that now they are the ones who are kicking against the goads. They are the ones who walk in darkness and are in need of light. In our witness, we can appeal to our common human experience. And one of the ways that you connect with people like this is to be transparent enough to acknowledge how you are not as you should be. This is what Paul does. He might have preferred to leave out the fact that he murdered Christians. But by acknowledging his own sin and his resistance to God, he invites his audience to admit the same. You can be prepared to share your own experience as well, your own former assumptions and misconceptions and even sin that the Lord has delivered you from. Being a Christian does not mean that you now need to pretend that you are perfect, because you're not. Your willingness to be transparent about your struggles will be a more authentic witness especially when you point to Jesus as the hero and rescuer. He is the one who has set you free. We do not free ourselves. Now, we do not all have as dramatic a story as Paul, but we do have things that we can be transparent about. And in doing so, we can appeal to our common human experience. We can acknowledge the bondage that we are in as part of a broken world, and then we can point to the Savior of the world who came to set us free. Fourth, you can appeal to the evidence of history. One of the statements that Paul makes here in defense of the gospel in chapter 26, verse 26, is he says, these things have not escaped the king's notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Paul is not afraid to defend the historicity of these events. They didn't happen in a corner. They are not hidden events that no one has seen. In fact, the risen Jesus appeared to many different people, and they could be found, and they could be questioned, and they could give their own witness. We can appeal to the evidence of history, whether in defense of the resurrection or in defense of the authenticity of the Bible, you do not need to check your intellect at the door. There is substantial historical evidence to believe in the resurrection. N.T. Wright, in his book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, argues for the historicity of the resurrection. It's a heavy, thick book, but worth a read. An honest historian must affirm at least four facts about Jesus. Jesus lived and was crucified. Jesus was buried and his tomb was discovered empty. A variety of witnesses claimed to meet the risen Jesus, and his disciples believed that Jesus rose from the dead. N.T. Wright then says that the historian must therefore ask why the early Christians made this claim about Jesus and why they reordered their lives accordingly. When you start to really think about it, you must eventually conclude that the resurrection is a true event in history. And if Jesus really did rise from the dead, then it confirms what he said, and he truly is the Savior of the world and worthy of your entire devotion. In your witness about the gospel, you do not need to be afraid of the historical record. A logical person can and should conclude that the resurrection is real. And the resurrection of Jesus makes it possible for us all to be free from the bondage of a broken world. And so the fifth appeal is to the opportunity to be free. Paul stands in the middle of an audience hall. All eyes are on him. He's surrounded by people who have all the privileges that the first century world can provide. 
all which are physically free, but in spiritual bondage. And in an ironic twist, Paul tells them that he would have them all become like him, except for the physical chains. Paul's hands are bound, but he is free in every way that matters. He is freer than any other man in that room, and he wants them to be, all be free as well. He wants them to have eyes to see that they are actually the ones in slavery, slavery to their desires, in bondage to their power and privilege, living under the burden of their idols in their sin, stuck in the patterns of stale religion. And in the last 2,000 years, not much has changed in this regard. Humans still live under the same types of bondage, physically free, but surrounded by those who are enslaved to their desires. In your witness, you can appeal to our shared desire to be truly free. Listen when people talk to you, and you'll begin to hear what people are enslaved to, and you'll begin to hear what freedom in Christ might do in their lives. Freedom is found in the only human who is ever truly free. Jesus came to those who were enslaved by sin and died so that they might be free. Jesus did not come to be served, he says, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The one who was free became bound so that we might become free. The one who never sinned died for our sins so that we might be free from the guilt of sin. And the one who died rose again so that in our own death to sin, we might know the promise of new life. Paul knew that sort of freedom. He wanted everyone at his trial to know that same sort of freedom. Verse 29 is the sort of sentence that has the peculiar power to change your life. If you are enslaved, it's a reminder that you can be free in Christ. And if you're already free in Him, it gives you the courage to help others become as you are. And now let's turn to the table together to remind ourselves of the death that has set us free. Jesus was bound and chained, accused and rejected, suffered a shameful death and bore the weight of sin's penalty. All so that we could go from darkness to light, from death to life, from bondage to Satan to freedom in Christ that we might receive forgiveness from sin and a place among those who are sanctified through faith in Jesus. That is what we seek to celebrate and remember together around the table. And so, just practically, if you did not get the elements on the way in, just raise your hand, and one of our Connections team members will bring them to you. If you're on the live stream, you can participate. Just head to your kitchen and grab a cracker and some juice. You don't need to be a covenant member here to participate, but we do ask that you have trusted in Christ to participate, that, you, that you've known that sort of freedom that comes in Jesus. If you've entered today having rejected God but have been convicted of your sin, then you can repent. If you've been convinced that you need Christ's death on your behalf, you can trust in Him today. The Scriptures say that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. If God is stirring in your heart, trust in His salvation today. Be welcomed into the family of God and know the freedom that comes in Christ. When we take communion, we are urged to consider our lives, to examine ourselves. We are all about to share in the one table of our Lord in unity. And so, if you have anything against a brother or sister in Christ, then seek reconciliation without delay. The table is a chance to confess and repent of sin, to confront our pride, to trust in Christ's death on our behalf. And so after you have repented and confessed your sin, you do not need to sit in shame, but you can participate in confidence, knowing that as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the gospel over yourself, trusting again that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I'm going to give you a moment of silence now to take a time 
to examine in your own heart, to confess and repent, and then I'll lead us in taking the elements together in a moment. Now as we take communion, receive the good news of the gospel preached over you as we remember the hope that we have in Christ. The scriptures tell us that in the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As you eat this bread, remember Christ's body broken for you. They say that in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As you drink this cup, remember Christ's blood shed for you. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the freedom that is found in Christ. I pray that as we just took the bread and the juice, as we celebrate Christ's broken body and shed blood on our behalf, as we remember the sacrifice that has set us free, would it give us strength and courage for the days ahead? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.